You're listening to the First Baptist Church of Marble Falls, Texas sermon podcast. For almost 130 years, FBCMF has served the Marble Falls and the Greater Highland Lakes area faithfully through children's programs, youth activities, and adult discipleship. We invite you to join us each and every Sunday at 9 and 10.30 a.m. for deep fellowship, rich worship, and a spirit-filled message. Never miss an archived sermon by subscribing to our podcast on either SoundCloud or iTunes. For more information about our church or to watch a video version of this and other sermons, please visit us online at fbcmf.org. Well, everyone, welcome, welcome to Red Out Day. It is a great Sunday morning. Red Out Day is uh, one of the most exciting and, and really one of the most important Sundays of the entire year. Our, our church has been around for 130 years, and on Red Out Day is, is the very special day during the year where we all come and we remember how faithful God has been to us. How wonderful the Lord has had his hand on us and led us every step of the way. And so we, we retell all of our stories. We talk about um, what God has done to help us to move forward. And, uh, and it helps us to look forward to the future. It's very motivating when we look at what God has done for us in the past because we, we know that the Lord is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And if he has been so faithful to us in the past, then that means God is going to continue helping us move forward into the future. We call it Red Out Day because in our, our history, there was once a very, very faithful and amazing pastor named Max Copeland. I wish that all of you had had the chance to meet him and know him very intimately. Y'all, there really was very few people in this world like him. He, he was the pastor here in our church for over 42 years, and he transformed not just our church, but the whole community, the whole community. People's lives, I meet them all the time, are very different because of his influence, his preaching, who he was in their life, his sacrifice for them. And his favorite color was red. He would wear red suspenders and red socks. And so what we do is about this time of year, we all wear red and we come. If you're not wearing red, boo. No. They, honestly, I, for, I, I told people all week long, wear red, wear red. It's a big red out Sunday. And I showed up this morning with a blue shirt and a blue tie. And uh, I, I came in and, and into the great hall Everybody was wearing red, and I thought, ah! I got on the phone, I called Megan, and I said, bring me a red tie, fast as you can. So thank you, Megan, for saving, <laughs> saving me. Um, y'all, the, Max would always preach this message, and he did it during this time of the year, every year, called Let Us Go Forward. It was a vision kind of sermon. Let Us Go Forward. He would talk about how in, in the book of Exodus, how God was leading the people out of the, uh, the land of Egypt and into the promised land, and he would say, let us go forward, and then he would talk about how God was leading our church to go forward. And, and this past week, I listened to one of his let us go forward sermons that he preached a long time ago, and, and I'm telling you, it was one of the most motivating, brilliant sermons it blessed me so much, and so this morning, I want you to be blessed as much as me and the staff were as we heard Max Copeland's voice 
booming and perfect as he talked about let us go forward and in this little clip this audio that we're going to let you all listen to uh, he talks about how the god had been leading them forward and how he had preached this in all of these different locations he talks about the burning down of our church over on main street which happened and how god continued to lead them forward and then he starts to cast a vision into the future just for the next few minutes I want you to be blessed this morning, and uh, if you don't know Max Copeland, I'm happy to introduce his voice to you during this time. Would you listen? One year I preached this sermon in a beautiful, remodeled, and expanded building there on Main Street on that location. And I remember well the beauty of that marvelous place and the beauty of the devotion of God's people. And then there came on a cold March morning a dreadful fire which totally destroyed the sanctuary and all of the educational space and we had nothing left but ashes and faith in Almighty God. And so the next time I preached this sermon, I preached it in an abandoned store building downtown. We call it the Charlotte Building. And then I guess about the next time, or shortly thereafter at least, that we moved into the new sanctuary to my right. I preached this sermon, let us go forward. And already in this place, this new house of God, we have preached this sermon, let us go forward. I simply want to say this morning that it is our obligation as the people of God, as individuals, to go forward. I simply want to say that any child of God who's not growing ought to be. That any person redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus ought to be getting better every day. He ought to be improving his outreach. He ought to be improving and deepening his spiritual life. But I want to say too that a church ought to be going forward. And we praise God for the foundations of this church. We praise God for all of the wonderful things that he has done in years gone past. But those things inspire us and instruct us and teach us, and today we have on our hearts, let us go forward. I would that there should be nothing in the heart and the mind of any member or any friend of this church except a notion of progress. Let us go forward. The idea, let us go forward in, in Max's voice, and you can hear it, is this idea of, of advancement. General Patton used to say, when talking about ever having the moment of a retreat, he would say, no, 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 I don't pay for the same real estate twice. We're advancing, we're moving forward, we're going ahead, we're looking what God wants to do, and we're trying to make a difference in our world. We don't know when Jesus Christ is coming back. This is the only day that we have, and so we are trying to move forward as a church and as Christians. As I think about the idea, and as I listen to Brother Max, he talked about moving forward in terms of fellowship and in terms of missions and in terms of the, the ministries of the church, and I thought about our church moving forward, and it and it struck me that, that we are going to do things. We are going to do wonderful things in our community, 
in our state and all over the world, but as we do, there's a group of people that as we move forward, we would have the tendency to leave behind or to think about doing ministry without them in some way unless we are very intentional about it, and that is we cannot move forward without our children and our youth. Our children and our youth. Max Copeland had a a wall of honor in his office, and that wall of honor was not all of his credentials or his diplomas or all of his awards, of which there were many. It wasn't any of that. It was simply a huge wall full of pictures of the next generation, children and youth and and young adults who would come and say, Brother Max, would you put my picture on your wall? And he had all of these pictures, and he would bring me into his office, and he would say, look, Ross, I'm more proud of this than anything. It's my wall of honor all of the young people. I think of our wonderful school district, the Marble Falls Independent School District that has an eternal red seat in their football stadium because he supported all of those games and in the gym as well, the Max Copeland Gymnasium, the eternal red seat that's there and how important it is. And it demonstrates a person who did not, did not go to all of those games and do all of that because he had time to That wasn't it. He did it because he was trying to influence those kids toward Jesus Christ. That's his goal. And and that's what we ought to be trying to do as well. In January, we're going to launch a brand new vision of moving forward in our children's department. But on this occasion, I just feel compelled that I want to say a couple of things about our children's ministry today. I have words about us going forward in the children's ministry. There's a great story of a children's ministry in the Bible, and uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell about it, but you'll know the the event um, as soon as I mention it. But I have been struck by how different Mark and Matthew tell the exact same story. Uh, the, The story of the children who came to Jesus. And and as they were coming, you will remember that the disciples, the apostles, kind of blocked the way, and they didn't want all of the children to come to Jesus. And, uh, but, but they came nonetheless. The Bible says that there were parents who brought children to Jesus, and then the Bible says that sometimes the children would just come to Jesus. I kind of understand it a little bit. There is a special connection that pastors have with the children of the church. I heard a story about a preacher who was right in the middle of his sermon, and there was a little child kind of up toward the front who broke away from her parents, got out into the aisle, and ran down as quickly as she could. The parents couldn't reach out and grab her quite quick enough. And uh, to their horror, she came right up onto the stage where he was preaching and handed him a picture that she had drawn on the back of a tithing envelope and handed it to him. And the preacher was so good, he just stepped out from behind the pulpit, he came right down to her, and he goes, well, hello, Becky. And she said, hi. And she said, I drew this for you, and I colored it too. And she gave it to him, and and he said, oh, it's so lovely. What is it? And she goes, this is a picture of my daddy sleeping in church. And she goes, I drew it for you. And he said, sweetie, this is awesome. I'm going to hang this in my office where everybody can see it. I get it. There is a bond between pastor and the children of the church or between the youth minister and the youth or between the children's minister 
and the children. There is a bond. I, I can kind of picture it. The children squirming to get away from their parents while Jesus is talking. Maybe they did kind of break away and run up to him. Maybe he's right in the middle of the whole Sermon on the Mount one day. We don't read about it, but, but maybe they came and interrupted him on several occasions. Just here, we, we find out that we're told that it happened this one time. I could see it happening. We're told that G, the children were drawn to Jesus, and I'm not surprised by that, but what I am a little surprised by, or what we should note in the passage, is how much Jesus was drawn to children. It also says that parents brought their children to Jesus so that he might bless them. Goodness, I get that too. It doesn't matter how old we get as parents or how old our children become. We always want them to be blessed. We want the very best for our kids. The apostles James and John, their mother Salome, went to Jesus one day and she said, now you see my grown-up boys over here, I'd sure like for them to sit at your right and your left. It never stops for us, does it, parents? We always, always want the very best for our children. The moment the doctor comes in or you find out, you know what, you're expecting, you're young, and, and, and at that moment, my goodness, we got to start getting ready, and the mom starts taking special vitamins, and the dad starts working on everything. We want the very best for our kids, and it never, ever stops. We want the best for our grandkids, and it never gets out of us, parents. We always care about them in that sense. And, and, and if it's not that way, something is dreadfully wrong. In Mark's gospel, as he tells the story of the children coming to Jesus, I like the way he tells it. it, it, it he, it's just beautiful. It, it's the, Mark's gospel is actually the one that that we see pictured in places around the church and nurseries where the children are up on Jesus' lap. I like how Mark puts it. It says that the children came up and sat right on Jesus' lap and he hugs them. It's the picture of tenderness between Jesus and the children and intimacy between them. It's just such a special kind of picture. And he took the children in his arms placed his hands on them, and he blessed them. That's the way to tell it. I like how Mark pictures it. And then I read Matthew, and Matthew does something totally different. You read Matthew, it's the same story, but Matthew leaves out all of the tenderness all of the, the, the hug, all of the arms, none of that's there in Matthew at all. And, I, and it struck me, why is Matthew so different? In fact, you start reading Matthew from verse 1 all the way through verse 14, and there's this kind of harsh tone in Matthew. Matthew all of a sudden starts to lecture grown-ups and adults about their kids. Matthew starts to, none of this jumping up and in, in, onto Jesus' lap business. He just moves right to this. Parents, you need to know something about children. Church, you need to know something about children. Apparently, Matthew talks about the things Jesus said to the adults. And he gives them this incredible warning about how they're dealing with children in their life. An incredible warning. Uh, for all of the adults, there's this sobering kind of um, 
hardness about Matthew's telling of the story. And so I tried to figure out, well, why was it so different? Mark says that the apostles tried to stop all of the children from coming to see Jesus, almost as if the apostles thought that they were Jesus' ministry bouncers, kind of putting up a a, a roadblock as if they're the, the gatekeepers to Jesus. Hey, we need to talk to Jesus. We'd like to bring our kids to Jesus. Well, that's nice, but, but why don't you tell me first? And then I'll decide if it's important enough, and I'll decide if your issue is big enough. I'll decide if your illness is bad enough. I'll, I'll decide, and then I'll go back and ask Jesus. But you know, he put me in charge of a lot of things. I got a lot of power. I'm the gatekeeper, so why don't you just ask me? That's the attitude sometimes of these apostles. I don't understand it. We picture the apostles stopping all of it from happening, and it really is difficult for us to grasp, but it's hard for us to picture the the disciples looking over there and saying, hey, kid, get off of Jesus' lap. Don't hug Jesus. And from our culture, we, we... Our church, all of us, we're so different than that. But these apostles, they're they're acting like the gatekeepers as if you have to get their approval in order to get to Christ. And, and, And as if they were looking all the time for a little bit more power, a little bit more power, and, and often it doesn't work with adults, so maybe they took their power to the least of these. All right, we, we can't control anybody else, but by golly, we can keep kids away. And then they found out that they can't even do that. <laughs> Jesus looks at the apostles and he says, y'all ain't my bouncers. You're not my gatekeepers. No, 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 he said. You've, you've missed it entirely. For the kingdom, let the children come to me. And then Jesus says, for the kingdom of God belongs to these kids. And it wasn't just a foreign idea. It was a revolutionary idea. It was a radical kind of idea because nobody in that culture, in that period, put the kids in that kind of place. The kingdom of God, Jesus is saying the children are getting into the kingdom of God when all of the adults wanted to. How many times in Scripture do we see where uh, uh, adults will come up to Jesus and say, what do I need to do to get into the kingdom of God? What do I need to do? How um, You just tell me. I'll do anything to get into the kingdom. And Jesus taught about it all the time. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like a net over and over. If you want to get into the kingdom of God, here's what it's like. And so all of these adults, they're in a mad dash to get into the kingdom, trying to figure out how to do it. And, and all of a sudden, Jesus says, you know what? The children are in the kingdom of God. And it was radical. The children had no influence and they had no um, education, really no deep understanding of things. They had no power. These are three very important things that people felt were important to get into the kingdom of God. But Jesus' inclusion of non-influential, ignorant, and powerless people into his life and into the kingdom of God was a fresh and a brand new concept it, it, it not only was countercultural, it was counter theological as well. And I believe that, that if our children's ministry here in our church is going to help 
build bridges and connect children with Jesus Christ, then we need to have a little bit of a radical children's ministry too, where we push aside any roadblock, any person, anything, any situation that seems to be blocking our children and youth from getting to Christ. We need to be people that move it aside and help our children get to Christ. We need to deeply challenge the the regressive, not progressive, the regressive issues in our culture that, that keep children away from Jesus Christ. A radical children's ministry does this especially. It, it brings everybody together to help children connect to Jesus. Now, when I say everybody, I'm talking about the relational system around a kid. You have the parents, the grandparents, and the family, and they're part of the relational system. But then you also have in that system all of the church, all of the um, people who share the commonality of, of knowing Christ together. They're a part of the relational system. And then you have the ministers and you have special teachers, Sunday school teachers, and people who are directly have a responsibility to help them. That is the relational system around our kids. And together, the whole relational system helps to connect children to Jesus Christ, and we remove any stumbling block that may get in their way. And when we don't do that, Matthew 18 goes into this talk about this... this um, um, millstone issue, this millstone idea. He said that if we do anything that causes children or our youth to struggle, to know God, to, to um, stumble away from the Lord, if we're not helping to connect them with God, then it would be better for our life if a millstone were placed around our neck and we were thrown into the sea. A millstone. That ain't a pendant around your neck. A millstone was about as big as a Volkswagen. And, but Jesus didn't say that it was just a millstone. He said, he, he puts the adjective, this is a large millstone. It means that if we do anything that prevents children or, or unintentionally doing things so that it leads children away from Christ, that it would be better for our life if something the size of an SUV were chained around our neck and we were thrown out into the sea. Okay. What is more evident then God takes this very, very seriously. I mean, he's not messing around. It's a big deal. My daughter Tess read to me this passage on the way home on Tuesday night, and it struck me as if it had never struck me before, that, that if I do anything that hinders her or makes it harder for her to know the Lord, if I'm not building a bridge between her and the Lord, it, it doesn't say that I'm going to hell, but, but it does say that in regard to my life, if I'm not helping people to connect with God and, and, and they're falling away, maybe because of me, that it might be better if I just went away and if I were not in their lives whatsoever. Sometimes as, as a parent, what we do, they, though, we put all of these stumbling blocks in our children's lives, and it's as if we get the millstone chain, and we're putting it around our own neck. 
I don't get it, but we do. It's easy to look at, at these, these parenting and church kind of extremes and how we deal with our kids. But each one of these extremes, when we do this, parents, it's like we're taking the millstone and putting it around our neck when we do. Both of these extremes are going to, to show how we put stumbling blocks in front of our kids. The first extreme is this, and it's the very common blunder of making everything all about little Johnny to where he, or, or, or he, he thinks the whole world just revolves around him. And in the end, any child who thinks the whole world revolves around them, they're going to come to a moment and they're not going to see their need for the Lord. And if you teach a little baby and an infant and a toddler that everything revolves around them all their life, they grow up to be great youth, don't they? I mean, great teenagers. It's pretty hard to reel in a 19-year-old when for 19 years we've been telling them, hey, whatever you like. Everything is about you. It's tough. Then, the, the, the recent college admissions scandal is an indication that sometimes parents do way too much to help their kids be happy and successful. In the book by Roald Dahl, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, there's the satirical element that talks to, to parents and talks to the whole relational system around the children. And, and, and in the book, every, you know, all of the little heathens that get in trouble and they, uh, uh, things happen to them, of all of them, the one that I dislike the most is Veruca Salt. And, and she's just throwing a fit because she wants the squirrel and she's not used to be told, being told no. And so when, when she says, I want the squirrel now, and, and they say, no, you can't have it, she goes ballistic and she says, I want it now. And she ends up getting, um, going down in the trash chute. And then all of the lovely little Oompa Loompas come out. And they sing to all of the parents that very nice song. It goes, Oompa Loompa Doopity Doo, I've got another puzzle for you. Who do you blame when your kid is a brat? Pampered and spoiled like a Siamese cat. That's a good rhyme. Blaming the kid is a lie and a shame. You know exactly who's to blame. The aunts and the uncles and the teachers and the co- No, no, no. It says the, the mother and the father. Now, that isn't exactly truth every single moment, but there is generally, generally speaking, there's a lot of truth to it. Uh, that, that's the the helicopter kind of extreme parent, but go to the other side. The other extreme is just as dangerous of putting stumbling blocks in the lives of our children too, and that is never taking an intentional path to help our children to know who Christ is and to develop in their relationship with the Lord. It's irresponsible adults. It's when we don't do what we need to do, and we don't think through the ramifications of if we do this for our child right now, or if we give our child this right now, here is what it may, the hurt and the pain that it could cause them later. It's irresponsible. Something that, that even looks innocent and, and things that we, we think, oh, it's very well-meaning. If it causes a kid to stumble, it particularly stumble away from God, we need to think, oh my goodness, let me hold off. 
And there are lots of things like this where parents are just irresponsible, where, where we are. Lane Malikian, our youth minister, has been teaching in one of our older adult Sunday school classes. And one of the things that he has been talking about is the use of screens and technology for our kids. And some of them in the class have said, you know what, we would give this advice to the younger parents with babies and infants. We would tell them that we would give them this advice, advice do not give phones to your kids too early. I, I, no matter how bad, no matter how bad they want it, I don't care how many times they write it on their Christmas list, they would tell us, don't do it. Experienced parents have learned a very valuable lesson about this. And younger parents, you ought to listen to them, to the older parents here in the church. These parents have real stories, not fake ones, about how these personal devices have not been wonderful for their family, but they've been the opposite of wonderful. And it's a common story all over our nation right now with teens all over and how their personal devices are not benefiting, but oftentimes they're hurting them and often it starts when they're very, very little. Lane said this, if you give your child a cell phone when they're young, it's like sending them into a foreign country without any adult supervision. And any parent who thinks, oh, it's going to be okay, it's no big deal, they're either delusional or irresponsible. But here's the frightening thing about Matthew 18 and the warning if that device could cause them to stumble away from God, and we get it for them anyway because they want it, Matthew 18 says it's like we have taken the millstone and putting it around our own neck. And we do it in other things as well. If we put so much emphasis into everything else in their life and hardly any emphasis into them really knowing Christ, and who he is, and building a channel for that, then we're causing them to stumble as well. Think about your life for a minute. Are there any ways, as parents, as grandparents, and as the whole relational system of the church, we are causing stumbling blocks to be put in front of our kids? Don't put the millstone around your own neck. You don't have to be a helicopter pilot on the one side and, or an irresponsible parent on the other. And to try to illustrate the, the whole relational system and how we come together in this, to illustrate how much time parents have and, uh, and how much time the church and other people have, our children's minister, Nicole, has a, a, an illustration here for us. Thank you, Nicole. Yes, yeah, so we have um, two illustrations we're going to show you. The large one is for you, parents. Now, trust me when I say that the data has been done, the math has happened, and according to experts, parents, you have 3,000 hours of influence each year with your teenager and with your children. 3,000 hours a year. What can you do with 3,000 hours a year? You can foster and create meaningful moments with your children. You can have good and engaging conversations with your children and with your teenagers. 
and you can pass on wisdom and guidance and build trust so that they can make kingdom of God godly choices and decisions. 3,000 hours. Now, the church has only 40 hours on average a year. A little bit less amplified, would you say? Our influence by itself is not as great. But imagine, church, if we combined our influence, Ross, if we combined our influence in order to impact this next generation, again, with kingdom of God outcomes. It's this relational system that we've been talking about. When the family and the church and the ministers come together and combine our influence and give this next generation the attention that they need and the investment in their faith development that they so desperately need. Now, I speak from personal experience. Troy and I raised our family in a relational system. We and people, the church that did life with us and a faithful ministry staff laid a foundation where we developed solid connections, we worked on faith, and we moved forward. Now, our boys are far, far from perfect, I promise you. But what we do have is we have meaningful relationship with them. Our 25-year-old and our 22-year-old still want to call and interact with us, and they still want us to pray for them, and they still want advice. And that was because of this relational system. Troy and I didn't do it alone. As a matter of fact, Ross, this system echoes back to an ancient Hebrew household concept with a tribal mentality where it literally took a village to raise children. These people bonded together, and they influenced their next generation. They gave them the attention that they needed. Kara Powell, the author of Sticky Faith, says a great predictor of a faith that sticks is for a child or a young person to have an average of five people investing in their lives, influencing them, and engaging them in their faith development. Ross, that's tribal language. That's relational systems language. So church, can we, can we combine our influence and can we give the attention that is needed for this next generation to know Christ and to have kingdom outcomes. What do you think, Ross? He's going to spend a little bit more time on this relational system and some values that we all need to agree on. All of them, right? There's not a all rogue right. one in the bunch. That's right. Tag How's team. that? All right. I got the ball back. We pass it back and forth. Thank you, Nicole. If we're going to be a relational system, parents and church and ministers, then there are things that we have to believe in together. There cannot be any rogue group. So here are our six values together that we agree on. Value number one, children must be taught what love is by first being loved by the whole relational system. And second, by learning about the love of Jesus Christ. Value number two, 
Children must be taught how their life has meaning and fits into the great Bible story from Genesis to Revelation. Value three, children must be taught how to use their mind, their heart, and their bodies in ways that honor God and increase the preciousness of others. Value four, children must be taught how to interpret their vital academic development, reading, writing, arithmetic, science, history, rhetoric, all of these, and other skills, athletics, art, and their interest, to interpret all of it as God's equipping them for wise living in our world. Value five, Children must be taught how to identify themselves as an adopted child of the king, bringing emotional stability, never too high on themselves, feeling superior, prideful, or arrogant, and never too low on themselves, feeling depressed, empty, hopeless, lonely, or suicidal. Isn't that great? Value six, children must be taught that their life is valuable to the whole relational system, and to God. Y'all, children do not learn these things automatically. The world will not teach it to them, and they cannot learn these things simply by being alive. A radical children's ministry understands that the whole relational system invests these six things into the children with endurance and sacrifice, putting ourselves last and them first. They f- and, and if we don't, we fail in our responsibility and we end up putting stumbling blocks in front of our kids and uh, separating them from the Lord. I recently heard a story about some of our children in our church. You know the Offord family, Gary and Melinda Offord. They have two children, Tanner and Taylor, who are twins, twin boys in elementary and, uh, and these boys go to school, and, and they have um, different classes and different teachers, but, but they switch classes, and they share the exact same class, and so they switch around, and, and they found out that the, the desk that the other one sits in, and they share a desk, and so one sits in the desk during a couple uh, part of the day, and then the other one comes in and sits at the exact same desk, and so with these twin boys, Tanner and Taylor would do, is, is they knew the other boy was going to come in, and they would write notes to one another in school during the day, and they would hide it inside of their desk, and, and they would write these notes back and forth like this. It would go, and they would have notes written to one another throughout the day. Here is a picture of the boys. There they are, Tanner and Taylor, the twins. So they go to school, and, and, and they write these notes. And here's some of the notes that they're writing to one another. Love you from Taylor. So it's Taylor writing to Tanner. Love you. Write back. Don't tell teacher. <laughs> Love you. Here's another. So he goes and he finds this note in his desk. And, that desk, and then it says, I can't wait for lunch. Why can't they wait for lunch? They see each other. Yeah, they finally, they get to see each other. And, uh, and then they would also, the parents said that they would write times. They would say like, 9.45, meet you there. 
And it means that one is in one um, class and the other one, and they tell their teacher they both have to go to the bathroom at 9.45. (laughs) Love you, have a good day, and then go to the last note. Have a good day, I love you. Trace this picture, please. I saw these, and I thought, of their magnificent relationship, how caring they are and how loving they are to one another, and how it's very likely that if the relational system fosters that, they're going to carry that into the future, aren't they? And when I thought of them carrying that kind of love into the future, I got it. I realized why Jesus said, if anybody makes one of the least, these little ones fall away and stumble away from me, it would be better for that person for a millstone to be cast around their neck and them to be thrown into the sea. Because we cannot take somebody that wonderful, somebody that loving, and children with so much potential and put stumbling blocks in their way so that they are lost to God and they end up being found by the world and found by the devil. We better not. Y'all may not know this, but we only have two adults working in our children's Sunday school department for the entire preschool department. Six classes, babies all the way through fours, two adult teachers. The reason that the Sunday school classes go on is because Lane Malikian is sending down our youth, juniors and seniors, to go and teach our children during Sunday school. But people haven't volunteered to go and teach the children. We all bow our heads with them. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church of Marble Falls, Texas sermon podcast. Never miss an archived sermon by subscribing to our podcast on other SoundCloud or iTunes. For more information about our church or to watch a video version of this and other sermons, please visit us online at fbcmf.org.